the Groove, the Minor League Baseball Podcast returns the first week of November. Hello, everyone. My name is Tyler Mon, Sam Dykstra in New York City. Welcome back to me and Yeah, you. welcome back to you. I mean, we had the show last week without you, and I'm That's sure true. a lot of people right now are generally excited. Everybody's like, that ugh, he's back. You started the show and not me, and that there was actual bumper music coming in instead of immediately hearing my voice and wondering, what the heck happened? What did you do to Tyler? So... <laughs> You're back, which is good. I think most people would have been probably pretty excited. Oh, we don't have to listen to that one yelling this whole time. That's good. Uh, but, hey, we're back to full speed. We're back to 100% capacity here on the MILB.com podcast. The show before the show is the name of this show. And uh, here we are, episode number 184. We're going to hit 200 episodes soon. That's pretty absurd. Um, and uh, we welcome you in. He's Sam Dykstra. I'm Tyler Mon. Uh, thanks for joining us wherever you found the podcast at MILB.com slash podcast. We're on iTunes. We are on Google Play. We are elsewhere. And uh, we're excited that you joined us. And we're going to talk a whole lot of Arizona Fall League this week. We are um, through half of the AFL season. We're actually coming up on really the close of the AFL season here in the next couple of weeks, which is kind of crazy. And then we're into the long, dark couple of months in which we have no baseball in the northern hemisphere really with the exception of uh the mexican pacific winter league and uh and a couple other leagues but um other than that not a whole lot going on you can always watch the australian baseball league you can check out uh what's going on in the dominican republic or in venezuela but stateside we don't have a lot after the conclusion of the afl so get your fill in now as we get toward the final couple of weeks of the arizona fall league and with that we will kick off three strikes talking about the afl on this week's episode of the show before the show the fall stars game is in the books the showcase game in the arizona fall league formerly called the rising stars game now the fall stars way better name um and the west division walking off with a 7-6 win over the East Division, thanks in part to this week's guest on the show before the show, Padres number 13 prospect Buddy Reed. Uh, that was a heck of a good game. I unfortunately missed it. It was out of the country, but um, a really good game uh, watching the highlights and looking back on this one um, a tight going into the ninth. It was 6-5. Buddy Reed drives a 3-2 fastball for a triple, scores Vlad Guerrero Jr. with the tying run, and then comes home on an amazing bat flip by Mabry's Valoria out of the Kansas City Royals organization. Um, but a really good game between those two sides and uh and congrats to the west for a victory in the fall stars game yeah and if anybody listened to the podcast last week which i hope you did i shouldn't phrase it that way if you listened as you all did listen last week uh to our interview with kansas city royals prospect khalil lee there was a little bit on the line there there was five hundred dollars to the winning players on the west team so uh i think buddy reed brought that up in his post game comments of saying like i wanted to get us that 500 bucks um and it, it Beyond that, it was just fun to see those guys actually care about this game. Um, yeah, 500 bucks on the line, you can buy a PS4 or something like that with that money. But uh, they all cared about it that for being, you know, obviously a league in which you're playing with a bunch of players who are not in your organization, uh, but now being mixed even more so and playing with more guys who you have even less experience with uh, coming together you know, for one game and to enjoy each other that much. Uh, I'm sure that's something we'll be talking about with some of these guys years down the line. They'll say like, oh yeah, last time I saw him was the Fall Stars game, something like that. Uh, so to see it be as fun a game and not be like a 10 to two drubbing or something like that, see it come down to the wire was really, really fun to watch live. Fall Stars game is uh, it's such a good opportunity for these guys to put themselves on the map in the AFL, which you can do, you know, outside of the scope of the Fall Stars game. But the fact that it's on MLB Network Radio, it's on MLB Network TV, and you kind of get the the hardcore baseball people beyond just the people who are reading stories and following the AFL closely. And if you're a fan 
who's flipping around and you're a, enough of a baseball fan that you'll sit down and watch the Fall Stars game, you're going to learn some names that maybe you hadn't learned before. And uh, Buddy Reed, um, we're going to talk more about Buddy Reed, and we're going to talk to Buddy Reed coming up in this episode. But he's a guy who has really firmly established himself, not just in the AFL, but really the entirety of this season uh, in the Padres organization and a, a terrific game for him, a terrific fall season for him so far. And uh, we'll discuss more about him uh, as the show rolls along today. But he is one of the guys featured in Strike 2. Sam's got a tool shed column up this week about some of the AFL's prospects who have really started to turn things around, whether it was a, a slow season that led them into the AFL or even just in Buddy Reed's case, he was coming off of a good year, but has really sort of asserted himself in his prospect status. Um, guys who have really taken that next leap in, in their prospect routes and uh, in the AFL, it's a very challenging environment in which to do that. Uh, but Sam, take us through this, uh, this week's tool shed on the, some of the stars breaking out in the AFL. Yeah, so the the scope of this was basically, um, you know, we're coming into the Arizona Fall League with kind of preconceived notions about a lot of these guys. They just played, for most of them, in, in most of their cases, a full 2018 season. Uh, you know, for most players, that means their season ends, and we take whatever those notions are, we carry them through the offseason, uh, we develop questions about what what are they going to do? How are they going to turn this around? Or are they going to be able to reproduce this? We carry that into 2019 and we don't get answers until next spring. Uh, the fall, fall league provides a, an opportunity for some of these guys to kind of flip those scripts. You know, take somebody like Buddy Reed, who we'll talk to later uh, about his time at AA San Antonio, where he really stalled out, was a, you know, below the Mendoza line hitter. Uh, going into next year, we would have thought, okay, is that the type of hitter? Not, is he, you know, going to be basically a 30 hitter going up, you know, further into the Padre system, but is his hit tool lower than we expected, lower than what we saw out of Lake Elsinore. Now he's been able to kind of flip that script. He's hitting over, you know, 300 in the fall league, been one of the better hitters there, flashing all his tools on that stage, showing that he can do this late into a season. Uh, so now you know, we don't have as many questions about him as we did <clears throat> about how his bat would handle upper level pitching. One other guy I want to talk about a little bit more extensively, though, is somebody else from the NL West in Melbourne, Adon, uh, the San Francisco Giants system. Adon, he's the number 19 prospect in that system. Um, a big reason for that is he is a hard thrower, but he has struggled with control. He's one of those typical types, six foot three, uh, can hit triple digits as he did over the weekend in the Fall Stars game. Had one of the cooler at bats, or I, you know whatever you want to call that, uh, from a pitcher standpoint, uh, against Vladimir Guerrero Jr. In that he was throwing hard, he was throwing. You know, close to triple digits, if not a triple digits, against Vlad, one of the tougher pit, or tougher hitters to strike out in the fall league this season. And then he got him with a crazy good slider away uh, that just froze Vlad. Um, and, and you know, there's not too many times where you have Vladimir Guerrero Jr. just walking back to the dugout, looking like he's almost scratching his head. That's something Adon was doing, and that's something a little bit more indicative of what he's been able to do in the fall league. Uh, this year, during the regular season, he was a starter. Uh, the Giants keep trying him in that role because, you know, in the lower levels, you can afford to do that. If a guy's going to throw hard, you want to see if he can do that for six or seven innings. Uh, but he has struggled to kind of keep that consistency, uh, make it work as a starter. This year, he had a 4.87 ERA uh, in 77 and two-thirds innings with Class A advanced Sam. 
San Jose, uh, 1.49 whip, 34 walks in those 77 and two-thirds innings. So again, some control issues. That works out into command issues as well when you're trying to be too fine. Sometimes you get a little too hittable. Uh, but he's been working as a reliever exclusively in the fall league. Uh, he's made seven appearances for Scottsdale, and he has the lowest whip of any qualified AFL pitcher right now. Uh, he's only given up three hits and two walks over nine and two-thirds innings. And because he's pitching in shorter stints, his stuff's playing up a little bit, as it did in that at-bat against Vlad. Um, and and he struck out 19 batters in those nine and two-thirds innings. So all he needs really is to show a plus-plus fastball, is to show a good slider. And I think the way he's handling this right now, uh, if I'm the Giants, I just give up on any idea of him being a starter, start grooming him as a reliever next spring. Um, right now, part of that is there's only so many starting spots in the AFL, obviously. He's kind of been pushed into a relief role. But if he's going to be this good against these many – or this many top prospects, uh, he's ready to do a relief role. He could move quickly through San Francisco uh, or to San Francisco by the end of next year, maybe the middle of next year, because his stuff is going to play in shorter since right away. So that's not something I thought about Melvin Adon coming in. It was going to be like, okay, can he throw strikes? We'll see how that works. He's been able to do that. He's been able to to show some really good breaking stuff on top of the velocity. Uh, and now I wouldn't be surprised if he not only climbs the, the prospect ranks next year, uh, but also the actual ranks of, of the San Francisco system and becomes a, a fixture of the uh, Giants bullpen for a couple years to come. Strike three this week. We are uh, into the offseason in terms of Major League Baseball's free agent landscape and how teams are going to look going into 2019. And we've got sort of the appetizer uh, to the main course that is the winter meetings this week with the general manager meetings, which are taking place in Carlsbad, California. Um, I don't think we're going to get a ton of answers out of the GM meetings, but it seems like the landscape is somewhat laid during the GM meetings of what the hot stove is going to look like, uh, what the, the free agent landscape and what the trade landscape is going to look like. Uh, when you look at how this goes into December, Sam, and beyond into spring training for next year. What systems do you think could change the most from trades going into next year? Obviously, there's so much focus on Bryce Harper and Manny Machado and what money the free agents are going to get, but trades are what reshape minor league systems. What is going to be reshaped this offseason, and how could the GM meetings lead us into that? Yeah, so uh, there are three systems I want to touch on real fast. That I think could, or well, three slash four. One of one of them changes two different systems, um, based on some of the rumors we're hearing going into the GM meetings. And you know, we don't have answers on this. And, and like you mentioned, Tyler, we might not get answers until the winter meetings, or if we have a winter meetings like last year, it might not be until a couple of weeks after that. Um, but just looking at some of the rumors that are, you know, piling up this week right now as we stand, uh, the four I'm looking at are right now, you know, the Miami Marlins. Uh, could be trading JT Real Muto. His agent seems to think he's going to be in a different uniform come opening day. Uh, you know, if the Marlins aren't going to compete next year, and by all indications, they're going to continue their rebuild process. Trading Real Muto, I think, is in everyone's best interest. Get him to a team that can definitely use him. He's by far and away the best catcher in Major League Baseball right now. Um, you know, he still has plenty of surplus value. They could get some really good pieces back for him right now. So the Marlins system. As things stand right now, do not have a top 100 prospect. Um, you know, they signed uh, the Victor's Mesa, uh, you know, coming out of Cuba. So that certainly helps things. But Monte Harrison has dropped out of the top 100. Sandy Alcantara is not quite there. Nick Neidert's kind of on that line as well. 
Um, so they don't have that top talent that you need for a rebuild. Trading Raul Muto could get them that. Now, the team that is being most heavily rumored right now to be involved in that mix uh, are the Atlanta Braves, who, as we know, have chips to trade. Now, what would they give away for somebody like Real Muto? We'll have to see. Uh, you can almost bet that if they were to make that type of trade, a top pitcher is going to be involved. Um, you know, Mike Soroka, Kyle Wright, Ian Anderson, Tuki Toussaint, Luis Gohara. Um, these are all top 100 types. Uh, you know, Bryce Wilson, Kobe Allard, again, all top 100 types that are arms within that system, all of whom would become the top pitching prospect in the Marlins system if a trade were to happen there. It's going to take multiple pieces to bring back Real Muto, so you're not just going to flip him for Mike Soroka one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. It's going to take more than that. You would probably have to throw in somebody like an Austin Riley, a Christian Pache, or a Drew Waters, or some more prospects further down the list. Um, but the Braves definitely have the pieces to make this work. And if we're talking about them you know, being arrived on the scene and not having to worry about stockpiling prospects anymore. This is a time to kind of cash them in and bring a piece back that, like I said, Real Muto is the best catcher in baseball, would be a definite improvement for them behind the plate. So we'll have to see how that shakes out. You also uh, that, sort of get the feeling, too, that because it's an in-division trade, the price tag goes up a little bit, don't you? I mean, if the Marlins are going to be think, making right. this deal with the San Francisco Giants or somebody like that, Giants probably not a very good example because the system isn't very strong, but you would think trading in the division, they're going to need more from the Braves than they are to ship him somewhere else. You would think that, but also, you know, if the Braves are offering the best package, I would— True. I would just take it at this point if I'm the Marlins. Like, don't get finicky over, well, because you we're going to see Real Muto 18 times a year. Right. Uh, it's going to cost you one more top 100 prospect because that's how deals fall apart. And then all of a sudden you're you're taking the second best package. So I, I get that. And I think that that's kind of like an older way of thinking. But if you're definitely in rebuild mode, just take what the best offer is on the table if it meets your threshold. Uh, and the, the Braves definitely have the opportunity to do that. So if they're willing to go that far, if I'm, you know, the Marlins, I take whatever the Braves are will, willing to give uh, and kind of run with it and start to build that foundation of that system. Uh, two other ones I'll touch on real quick. Um, the Cleveland Indians, almost inexplicably, I get it, the financials might not be working up for their owners, but this is a team that was in the World Series two years ago, just won its division this year. Um, just needs to add a little bit, needs to fill out its outfield, and I think it could be right back there with the Astros and the Red Sox and the Yankees for American League contenders. But rumors are persisting that they might start looking at trading some of their pieces, not named Jose Ramirez and Francisco Lindor. A little bit of a head-scratcher for me, but if they are to trade somebody like Corey Kluber or Carlos Carrasco, uh, you look at the state of the Indian system right now, uh, it's not as strong, obviously, as it once was. Uh, right now, Tristan McKenzie is a top 100 prospect for them. Uh, Nolan Jones also in that mix, and then it really falls off from there. Um, so they could build out that system a little bit if they are, were to trade some of their really top-end arms. Do they need to do that? I don't really necessarily agree with that because yeah, it is a good team as it is currently situated. They just need to add to it, just spend a little bit more money, and I think they're right back in it. So I hope that doesn't happen from that aspect, but this is an Indian's – farm system that could use a little puffing out itself. So we'll see if that happens. Uh, another one kind of in a similar boat, the Seattle Mariners uh, reports are coming out that they might not necessarily strip it to the studs. Jerry DePoto is 
come out explicitly and say said that's not going to happen. Uh, but they know they have some assets. They can't quite get there in the AL West uh, to catch up to the Astros, and they weren't able to secure a wild card spot this year. So what are they going to do? Um, maybe they start a little bit of a rebuild, see what they can get from Mike Zanino, James Paxton, maybe even Edwin Diaz, which would be fascinating. Uh, but as we've discussed before, the Mariners system is definitely at a down time right now. A lot of that has to do with some of the trades Jerry DePoto made. Uh, Luis Gohara, if he's still in that system, he's their top prospect easily, but he got traded to the Braves. Um, so, you know, I like Evan White. I like Kyle Lewis when he's healthy, uh, but this Mariner system could definitely need help because if they're looking to, you know, break through that gap in the AOS or in the wildcard races, uh, it's probably not going to come internally. So they need to start looking at some of these deals uh, if they were to trade somebody like Paxton or Diaz, definitely the system would, would jump up a little bit. Uh, they would definitely get some big names back for, for the, either of those two guys. Uh, so we'll be keeping an eye on that between the GM meetings here and all the weeks to come all the way through the, the offseason because, uh, as last year showed, you know, it, there is no arbitrary date where it's, everybody's going to look to get their business done by. Uh, some of this stuff could carry on well into the spring. So that'll do it for three strikes on this week's episode of the show before the show. And coming up, the AFL discussion continues. We're going to head to the Peoria Javelinas and the 13th-ranked prospect in the San Diego Padres organization, Buddy Reed, who joins us to talk about his breakout 2018 at Class A Advanced, his breakout 2018 in the Arizona Fall League, and uh, some time on the ice as well. Buddy Reed's got a very interesting sports background, and we'll talk with the 13th-ranked prospect in the Padres organization coming up next. We are headed to the Arizona Fall League this week on the latest episode of the Show Before the Show podcast from MILB.com. And there we find the 13th-ranked prospect in the San Diego Padres organization, outfielder Buddy Reed, who has just been tearing things up for the Peoria Javelinas in the AFL so far this offseason. And, uh, Buddy, welcome to the show, man. How are things down there? Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. Uh, things are fun. It's, it's cooler, obviously, Compared to June and July, but no, it's a lot of fun being around these guys, uh, some of the top prospects in every organization and, and hanging out with them and building relationships, having a good time. Well, take us through this experience so far. It's been uh, 13 games. You're slashing 365, 421, 481. You're the AFL Fall Star game, Fall Stars game MVP. Uh, you get to play in your your home spring training complex, which is pretty cool. It's kind of a different thing. Uh, a lot of guys who you know don't get that experience, uh, who are in the Grapefruit League for spring training, get to come over. And you guys, being the host team, sometimes in your case, the the Padres and Mariners at your facility, it's got to be kind of a cool aspect of it. But just walk us through, you know, what it's been like. It's been 13 games for you so uh, a little bit limited I guess over the the first month um, in terms of daily play but um, just this whole competition and being down there and the success that you've had um, take us through it well I've come here with a with an open mind you know I'm struggling a little bit in double A I just wanted to come out here refine my approach and at the same time uh, have fun that's what this game is about and I feel like I've done that as well um like you said, playing here out in Peoria at, at our home spring training facility is awesome. I'm on the Mariners side right now because we split. So being around those guys from the Mariners side is, is really cool just because I know I'll see them during spring training. And then, of course, just being around our, our Padres players is fun. I'm living with Austin Allen, and we're we're having a good time over here, working hard um, on and off the field in the weight room and, and then just getting our bodies and our minds right to play every day. Even though I don't play every day, I still have to uh, pay attention to the game and, and 
lock in just because I, I may be facing these pitchers now um, at a different date or uh, later in the future in the big leagues. One of the things you mentioned, you get to establish all these relationships with guys who are teammates and guys who you're seeing on the other side and all that. Um, and getting to learn from players who maybe you haven't encountered so far in your career or bounce things off of each other. Um, what's that experience been like being you know, in an organization or in a team with players from so many different organizations? It's kind of a melting pot of ideas. How has that been to you know get a chance to be able to sort of immerse yourself and the collection of personalities and thoughts and, and the intellects of guys who are around you on your roster and on other ones? It's actually really cool. You know, playing in the Fall Stars game, I got to meet guys from other organizations, of, uh, obviously, but I got to talk to them about what they look for in pitchers, whether it's pitchers tipping pitches or what they look for um, to start in that bat, how they work the counts, whether they're aggressive not aggressive they like taking the first pitch or they like to wait to get to two strikes and work deeper in the count and it's really cool to see everybody's a, a little different um and i like talking to the guys that that have a good idea of what they're doing um and the guys that have come here as well to work on their approach and refine their approach whether it's trying to draw 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 more walks or, or see more pitches and things like that and definitely like playing in the false stars game and then talking to Vlad about hitting uh, for being a 19 year old. And he knows so much. Um, and I can just pick off so many ideas from him and use those as I go um, along in my career. I'm glad you brought up the false stars game. That's a big reason why we wanted to have you on this week. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about specifically was that at bat that got you the MVP award, uh, your game time triple in, in the ninth inning against Justin Lawrence, somebody you saw from your Cal league days, uh, he threw you a 98-mile-an-hour fastball low and away. You managed to punch it basically all, all the way to the wall in left center, speed around to third base. Uh, one of the things going into that at bat, too, even the broadcast was noting when I was watching, is how much you were choking up uh, going on there. How much of that was based on your prior knowledge of Lawrence and how much of that was like the day-to-day -day adjustments you are working on in the fall league? Well, I've always been a big believer in uh, trying to put, obviously, put the ball, the bat on the ball uh, as much as you can. Choking up is something I've been been doing this this whole year, and I pretty much started it this whole year. It's just a comfort thing for me. And then facing Justin Lawrence um, in the Cali, like you said, whenever he'd come in the game, I would choke up maybe five five inches on my bat just because wow. it's kind of one of those guys as a hitter where you're just a little uncomfortable and uh, you're going to do whatever you can to, to put the bat on the ball. And so that's that's pretty much what I did. You know, I got into my two-strike approach, and I just wanted to put a good swing on it, obviously stay choked up and, and not try to do too much, especially from a guy who throws sidearm who has a lot of run and sink on his ball. Um, he's probably one of the toughest fishes I've ever uh, faced so far in my pro bowl career, and I just – like I said, I just wanted to put a good swing on it. I managed to do so, and, and I got to third base. One of the other things you talked about playing in that game was just how much fun it was and playing with new guys, uh, not just different organizations, but guys you're not even playing with in the fall league. Uh, and the emotion, the way it poured out of you and literally poured out of the dugout as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you did a celebration that – can you kind of describe it? Because Vlad did one that looked like he was shooting an arrow – you looked like one that was like lobbing a grenade or something. Uh, how much were you guys talking about what you were going to do for celebrations before the game amongst guys, like I said, you, you hadn't really played with before? Yeah, I guess the celebration was the bow and arrow. 
I mean, I was so hyped I didn't even know necessarily if I should pull the bow out of my back, I guess, and then shoot it. <laughs> so that that was just a, a shorter a shorter, quicker version of me shooting shooting the bow and arrow. Um I guess to the sky to the dugout just to to all the guys that were, were cheering me on over there on the um first base side. Gotcha. And uh, you've gone through so, sort of an experience like this before in terms of playing with other, uh, playing with new teammates, playing with different organizations, you know, being that you played this year at the Futures game in D.C. How did this experience compare to that? Uh, I feel like D.C., you have to fly in. It's a big event. It's part of All-Star Weekend. This is just like almost like another glorified Fall League game in which there's a lot of top talent on the field at one time. Uh, but how do you compare those two experiences? Well, for me, both were were huge honors. Being selected to go to any All Star game is an honor. Um, the Futures game was, I guess, top tier for me. One of the biggest moments of my life. And then even coming to the Fall Star game is just another big moment in my life, just because I'm being recognized as one of the best uh, prospects in in minor league baseball, as well as being um, being able to play with the other best prospects in, in all of the minor leagues. So, like I said, it was a huge honor. And they were both fun, to be honest with you. I mean, it's an all-star game, so that's what it's about. It's about having fun. It's about, obviously, trying to win and, and competing at the highest level with the best guys. And you can see it from, from both all-star games. The pitching was, shoot, unbelievable. Everybody's throwing mid to upper 90s, obviously touching 100, 100, 300 for, like, Nate Pearson and then um, the Justin Lawrence throwing 98 to 101 and then just – just there's a name, all the names of the guys that are throwing hard, and then even the guys that are that are hitting it, like Pete coming up in the first inning, hitting a home run off 103, uh, Vlad hitting a ball 117 miles an hour. Just being with this group, these groups of guys, it just shows you how much talent there is in the minors, and that all of us are are coming up, and we're so close to becoming um, major leaguers. Buddy, let's talk defensively. Um, you have played all three outfield spots. I know uh, primarily when you were in uh, Lake Elsinore this year, got a lot of work uh, in the corners, especially in left field. And then you go to San Antonio, you get a ton of work yeah. in center field. And now in the AFL, you're kind of moving all over the place, right, center, and left. Do you have a preference on where you play, whether it's in a corner or in center? And and if so, I mean, how do you how do you like each spot and how do you tailor your game playing in each spot? Yeah, it's all a little different. Um, I don't really, to be honest, I don't really care. As long as I'm in the lineup, I'll do whatever it takes uh, for the team <laughs> to win and give the team the best opportunity to win. So, I mean, left field is, is fun. Center field is obviously fun. I like tracking balls down. I get a better view of, obviously, the whole the whole field. And then I guess you say you put the guy with the strongest arm in right field, right? So, I like, I like playing all three. Um, Obviously, each position requires something different. Left field is the position where I think a lot of balls are hit more than I'd say right. And then center field, I get to command both left and right fielders depending on the hitter and then their swing. And then right field is just kind of, you know, looking to throw guys out from time to time. So I like all three positions wherever uh, the Padres or any other team would want to put me as long as I get to play and, and do what I can for the team. I'll play there. 
Buddy, let's talk about uh, one of your previous off-season stints. Um, you get your start in Pro Bowl 2016. You go to Tri-City to get things rolling out of the gate after the draft. Um, and you get some time in the Australian Baseball League over the 2017-2018 off-season. So this year you're in Arizona. Last year you were in Australia. And you go down there. You go to Canberra. You play 31 games. Canberra, a really cool atmosphere. they got a ballpark that continues to expand. And people there have really embraced that team. Um, but you're so far from home. You're adjusting to, to play in such a different style of play uh the travel's kind of crazy but it seems like you really discovered a lot about yourself there as a ball player and you hit 326 you put up a 1022 ops take us through that process and and what that did to get you ready for 2018 by going down and having that experience last year yeah once again it was kind of an open-minded thing at first i was like oh man going australia it's far away it's tough i want to be with my family and then it got to a point where baseball is my life it's my career it's my passion uh, I love the game and whatever it takes to get to the major leagues is, is what I'm going to do. So going there, it was definitely a unique experience. I got to play for Mike Collins, who was once uh, part of the Padres organization as a coach. And the biggest thing for me was working on my approach, limiting strikeouts and, and just putting, um, putting good at bats together and, and focusing on hitting the ball harder. I went there. I like you said. I had a really good um, 31 games, and I really did find myself as as a man, as a person on the baseball field. I got to steal more bases. I got to use my speed, and in the outfield, I got to uh, get better reads and work on my defense. And I think with all that and the help of all the co- uh, the coaches over there, and even the players and my teammates, um, I put together a really good um, winter ball season. And then I took that in the spring training, and then this past year, and it. And it all goes to uh, shout out to all the guys that have helped me and supported me and just all the positivity I've uh, received from my family and my friends and then the coaches and the guys that want to get me better. Yeah, and you take that and you go forward, like you said, into Lake Elsinore. Uh, that works out into, the like we talked about before, the Futures Game appearance, a really strong opening season. Uh, it was really cool to see you carry that momentum from Australia to you know the Cal League. Uh, you mentioned before, though, double-A San Antonio, things kind of stalled out. You had 179 in 43 games there. Uh, the speed was certainly there. You had 18 steals. Um, but what did you take away from that Texas League experience? I mean, that's double-A baseball. You're two, two levels away. It's one of the tougher jumps in the minors for sure. Uh, but what did you learn about yourself and what adjustments you needed to make based on your time in San Antonio? Yeah, the biggest adjustment was um... – I guess the pitching, the guys are, they know how to pitch a little better. They um, can make balls look like strikes and and things like that. And strikes look like balls. So for me, it was just to believe in myself and never doubt myself. I did have a little mental fatigue, you know, coming off of playing a lot of baseball as well as, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I lost a little bit of my barrel. I lost my timing. I lost a little bit of um, just knowing where my bat was. And so, like I said, the biggest thing for me was not giving up on myself, not quitting, showing up to work uh, every day uh, with the same goal in mind is to get better. Um, and then, obviously, there were streaks where I, w- I would do well. And so I think being consistent and having the right plan every day is what's going to separate me from other guys and that's going to get me to the big leagues i did learn a lot from um going to double a and then not having success is that things like that will happen it's not always going to be right away and you do like 
you do have to trust the process, like everyone says, and also staying positive. It will separate a lot of guys from the guys that aren't because if you're not positive, then how do you expect to attract and get have positive things come to you and happen to you? So those are some of the things I learned uh, going up to double A. Yeah, and taking those in and putting them into the fall league, and as Tyler mentioned, you know your numbers have been really solid there. Um, you know, where is your mindset now? Uh, do you feel like this pays off, and that you that positive mindset you talked about carrying that to the fall league now, seeing the results that you have? Um, you know, it, are you in a different mindset now than you were, you know, early September when you were ending your time with the missions, or do you feel like this is just a continuation of what you were doing there at the tail end of the Texas League? It could be a, a combination of both. I feel like I did need a little bit of a break. Those three weeks definitely I, uh, made me and let me clear my mind from baseball and focus on just seeing family, being with family, talking to friends and things like that. But then coming here, I did have a game plan uh, to come out here and prove to myself that I could still do uh, do what I did in Lake Elsinore and that, for I guess just for me, it wasn't a fluke. It was all the hard work that I put in. And so – here is just, I guess, more proof to myself that I, I can do it and with the right mindset and positivity and then surrounding myself with people that uh, believe in me and want to get me better, I, I can be an elite baseball player in the minors and then eventually work my way up to the major league levels and be a long-time um, major league player. And uh, one last one I want to bring up is uh, just kind of going back to biographical stuff, uh, you know, your milb.com page lists your birthplace is Bronx, New York. Uh, looking into you a little bit, I know you eventually moved to Maryland. Your Florida baseball page talks to you going to high school in Rhode Island. Um, I know yeah. Peter Gammons loves talking to, talking about you playing hockey uh, growing up and, and all that. Um, but how much were you moving around and how much and having kind of a diverse background, both in sports and just seeing different parts of the country? Um, how do you feel like that helped you going into college and eventually pro ball? Well, I was never really home growing up playing hockey. I would travel to Canada all the time. I got, I had to miss a lot of school because, I mean, my parents wanted me to be active more than being in a classroom. Um, they do value education, but at the time, that's my goal was to be a professional NHL hockey player. So I would, like I said, go to Canada, go to Detroit, Chicago, all the places uh, where hockey was big, and then traveling schools going to Rhode Island for three years of high school but also switching to school from eighth grade to ninth grade um, and then playing a bunch of different sports I feel like it didn't limit me just to playing baseball I didn't really peak at like a young age or peak at um, I'd say like in high school because you see some guys that play baseball year-round that's it's like all they know and um, I don't know necessarily like stats wise but you see guys that play baseball and all they know is baseball. They're the pitcher, shortstop. I mean, they get. I feel like they would get fatigued in a sense. And me playing all these other different sports, I didn't have to just focus on baseball. And I wouldn't have to have, like, my parents just keep pushing baseball, baseball, baseball. I could play baseball. I could play soccer, football, basketball, things like that. And I feel like doing all those activities um, that use different parts of your body got me to where I'm at today just – being, I guess, being so athletic and, and using my athletic ability to play uh, baseball. All right, buddy, then we got to ask you this. Um, there's kind of a 
strange baseball history of guys who went on to play some great baseball in their major league careers and could have done big things in hockey. Tom Glavin was an NHL draft selection back in 1984. To a much lesser extent, one of my favorite ball players of all time, Larry Walker, I think was cut by like pretty much every hockey team he ever played on, and yet he still maintains to this day that he was a better hockey player than he was a baseball player. How far would you have gone? Had you focused just on hockey, how far do you think you could have made it? I think I could have made it to the NHL. Man. I had some D1 um, D1 colleges looking at me in, in Rhode Island and D3 colleges. So, And obviously, there was always an NHL draft. I don't know if I would have ever gotten drafted right out of uh, high school, but I think I could definitely uh, have played in the NHL. That is pretty amazing. What was your best skill as a hockey player? Hmm. Sick handling and shooting. Okay. And then getting 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 um uh, and hitting, going down in the boards and getting the puck and trying to assist my teammates. That is That's interesting. Cool. I would have thought you would have said speed. But you you think it was more oh, of the stick handling yeah. stuff? Of course, yeah. I mean, yeah, I was fast. But I was I was try I would I always try to be kinda of like the skill player. How much – it's kind of an interesting crossover because your run tool as a baseball player is your highest graded, according to MLB Pipeline, at, at 70 on the yeah. scouting scale. How how do you think that speed trans- – I mean, speed on skates is so much different than just speed, you know, on a break where you're trying to get that quick first step, stealing a base or doing something like that. How do you think – what's the biggest difference between being able to be a fast skater and being able to be fast as a baseball player? Shoot, that's a tough question. I mean – I feel like if you're fast on land, you could be fast on the ice kind of thing. <laughs> um, but at the same time, yeah, I know guys that are fast on on land, like running, and that aren't fast. So I, I feel like it's, it's God-given. Um, you can always improve your your form. And I think hockey is – like you see these speed skaters. If you put a speed skater next to a, a normal hockey player, uh, the speed skater would most likely win just because of their form and how efficient their um, – their form is but at the same time um i guess hockey we're so aggressive with our with the way we we attack the ice and like push off and stuff like that where um some guys that uh, run fast do skate fast so i guess it all depends but for me i mean i've always been fast on land so i guess it has translated straight to um straight to the ice very cool. All right, buddy. Last thing for you. You may not have to actually encounter this in your career, depending on how things go uh, in spring training. You may just end up as a chihuahua, but there's a chance you go back to double A to start next season. And this is not official yet, but mm-hmm. the indications are Amarillo's team could be called the sod poodles. How excited are you to the be sod possibly poodle. a sod yeah. poodle? <laughs> well, I looked it up and I guess someone told me that the sod poodle is like uh, Lassie from, uh, what was it, that movie? The, oh, okay. The dog. I always yeah, thought it was a prairie so, dog. Yeah, I, I mean, I have no idea. but <laughs> You'll find out very quickly, I'm sure. Yeah, I'll find out sooner or later. But, like, I like the poodle part. I don't know about the size, but I like the poodle. <laughs> there you go. That works out. Buddy Reed is on Twitter. The 13th-ranked San Diego Padres prospect is at BuddyLoco23. And, uh, Buddy, we can't thank you enough for the time, man. Congrats on all success in the AFL. And uh, we'll be watching as we get closer to 2019. Best of luck. Thank you guys so much, and God bless.
Well, we uh, mentioned a Buddy Reed, and it is unconfirmed, and we uh, are not certain, but Amarillo's new name could be the Sod Poodles. That was one of the possibilities out for the new AA team headed to Amarillo, Texas. We have a new Class A advanced team that is headed to Fayetteville, North Carolina in 2019, and that team does have a name, and we bring in Benjamin Hill to discuss it. Hello, Ben. Hello, Tyler. Nice to have you back. Back on, yeah, back on a... American, I was going to say American Shores, but you're not even close to a shore. Uh, yeah. <laughs> back, just, it's good to have you back in the U.S. But Thanks, also, man. Um, it's good when you travel because I'm sure you your life was enriched by that. It was. It was pretty great. Um, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm enclosed within the shores. It's kind of the same. Although I was South American shores, so it was kind of the same there. Anyway, doesn't matter. Neither here nor there. Um, but uh, let's talk. The Fayetteville team that is moving from Bowie's Creek. The Bowie's Creek Astros are no more. The Class A advanced affiliate of the Houston Astros is headed to Fayetteville, North Carolina next year, where they will become the Fayetteville Woodpeckers who are the second wood-named team in the Carolina League after the Down East Wood Ducks. Uh, but the Woodpeckers announced their name uh, on November 4th, and uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina's new team has an identity now. Um, give us the rundown of this one. Yeah, the Fayetteville Woodpeckers. Um, this franchise, as you mentioned, uh, spent the last two years in Bowie's Creek uh, You know, playing at Campbell University. That was always a stopgap solution. That was certainly not a long-term minor league environment but it worked out uh the franchise itself is sort of the is the result of the two years ago uh or closer to three at this point of the california the california league contracting and losing the high desert in bakersfield and then two teams being added uh to the carolina league one of those teams is the down east wood ducks and now the other team after two years in Bowie's Creek is the other wood team, the Woodpeckers, the Fayetteville Woodpeckers. And they have a, a stadium under construction right now, which is on track to open uh, in 2019. Um, there is a 14 game road trip to start the season, which is always a good idea when you're building a new stadium because you don't know what you're going to run into with that. And as we learned so many times, yeah, as we've learned again and again. So 14 games, hopefully that's enough. And hopefully they don't want, they don't need that cushion at all, but it is the Fayetteville Woodpeckers. And I of course did my typical, uh, uh, you know, story on MILB.com in conjunction with the unveil, which happened uh, this past Sunday. Um, you know, it been known for a long time it was either going to be woodpeckers or fatbacks. And, uh, of course, it ended up being woodpeckers. And, of course, you know, when you talk to the team and read the press releases and write an article like I do, you know, you get the background on it. There is the kind of very typical in minor league baseball. Woodpeckers are strong and resilient and representative of the community, just like Fayetteville. Um you know, that works, but that's a little generic at this point in minor league baseball. Uh, to me, the more specific connection and the one that's more interesting is, um, you know, Fayetteville is the home of Fort Bragg, uh, the largest military installation in the country. And in Fort Bragg, uh, there is the largest uh, population of red cockaded woodpeckers in the country. And part of the reason the population is so strong is because about two decades ago, when the red cockaded woodpecker was named an endangered species. Uh, Fort Bragg actually had to accommodate that, um, you know, change their training exercises so that they didn't uh, infringe upon uh, woodpecker habitat. Uh, it was very controversial at the time. And I think going back to when that was happening, woodpeckers were none too popular in Fort Bragg for, uh, for the fact that it, it kind of disrupted their operations. But here we are in 2018. Everyone loves the woodpeckers, and especially in Fayetteville, the red cockaded woodpeckers. And uh, that's why they're the Fayetteville woodpeckers. And in the logo, that is, you know, technically a red cockaded woodpecker. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's looking strong, resolute, 
staring uh, into the distance, ready to defend against all comers, just like our nation's military, Sam. Yes, of course. He's kind of taken a bite, not a bite, but a, a couple pecks out of his bat. At his own bat, which displays remarkably poor impulse control. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, we're have to excuse him for that. I mean, it's tough to be a baseball playing woodpecker because you're holding wood all the time, and like, how could you not? You know, I'm trying to think of a right. good example, uh, and I'll come up with one later, and uh, then you can edit it. <laughs> Twenty four hours later, a yeah. new podcast episode will go in that it has a joke inserted here. Um, but so, how much of this color scheme was really just based on what the local woodpecker looks like, the red cockaded? Woodpecker, because they're coming from the Astros. They're being the Bowie's Creek Astros, which very much looked like Astros uniforms, the orange, the blue, the whites, whatever. And they, they're moving to Fayetteville, this whole new color scheme um, that seems to be driven by the species and not so much like baseball connections. Yeah, I was a little, maybe mildly surprised that because this team is not just an Astros affiliate, but owned by the Astros, that maybe there would be uh, something more distinct uh, to signify that connection. Uh, the logos were actually done in-house uh, by the Houston yeah, Astros. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, and I think Brandios had been involved earlier in the process, maybe with the, um, you know, kind of laying out the parameters of the name the team contest and everything, but they ended up not working on the logos. And uh, it was done in-house, and... Um, yeah, they went with the red, black, and white. I think they were going for one to match the colors of the the woodpecker in question, the red cockaded, and also because um, you know Fayetteville is so strongly tied in with the military. I did think they wanted something um, you know fairly conservative, or at least conservative by uh, today's minor league baseball <laughs> standards. Uh, something that 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 looked you know kind of a little bit more strong and minimal and. Um, you know, more palatable to people who maybe don't have a larger sense of what the minor league baseball landscape looks like right now. So, you know, Woodpeckers is not by any stretch, you know, a Syracuse Mets type of conservative name, but uh, it is, you know, when we're talking about the trash pandas last week, Woodpeckers is a comparative return to uh, normalcy. There was a, uh, a tweet from the Carolina Mudcats um, suggesting to their division rivals, uh, the Winston-Salem Dash and the Myrtle Beach Pelicans, that they should just all change their names to something wood-inclusive. So the Wood Dash and the Wood Mudcats and the Wood Pelicans, which would, you know, complete the uh, the Southern Division um, all across one consistent theme. Seems like a smart enough idea. There has to be some sort of rivalry trophy created out of wood for the woodpeckers and the wood ducks now though like that's pretty obvious and actually when we tweeted out the story immediately down east responded with a, a gif of joey gallo looking very confused as to how the name in the same division could be that similar so maybe it's a little bit of fire on the uh maybe it lights the wood on fire for those two teams <laughs> i'm sorry for the joke uh but you know maybe it's a it adds a little spice to this carolina league matchup between uh, fayetteville and down east Maybe it will. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, coming up uh, in a few days, the uh, the team in Amarillo will unveil its name. Uh, Colorado Springs, apparently that club will be unveiling its name as well pretty soon. Uh, a team that will now be part of the Pioneer League um, with the move from Helena as the AAA team from Colorado Springs has moved uh, down to San Antonio. So uh, still some names to be unveiled coming up this offseason. Last year felt like it was a pretty quiet one, so this year we've got uh, a lot to talk about on the rebranding front. Um, so 
be discussing those as the offseason rolls along. Um, the series of Ben's Best continued this past week with uh, a look at the best mascots in minor league baseball. Um, ben rolling through the best ballparks and uh, some of his favorite things from across the minors. And this time around, went through every level and named the best mascots. Give us the rundown of these, uh, these best six in the minors. Yeah, this was a tough one. I mean, this whole series has been tough for me, as I've said before, because uh, when you visited every park, it is tough to pick favorites. And there, as it is obviously pretty subjective, you know, no matter who you are, whether you're me, you, even Sam, you, you just you're going to have your own opinion, um, you know, be a part of it. And mascots I particularly struggled with because, one, you know, I love them all. And two, uh, it's like. You know, you're looking at the costumes and just the creativity, the actual entity, which I think goes a long way. But then you're also thinking, what about the mascots that perform very strongly? Obviously, that's a huge part of a success, uh, successful mascot. And I can't say my criteria was like super strict, but, you know, I just had to go with my gut and my feel. Um, so I think it's a pretty diverse, it's a diverse mix of anything else. You know, in AAA, you have Fresno, a bear, uh, who's been a huge part of their operation for a long time. Uh, you know, AA, San Antonio is moving to uh, AAA, but I put them in AA because that's what they had been and had to go with a ball of Peno and particularly Henry the Puffy Taco, who's just one of the most truly bizarre mascots and like a real cult icon in San Antonio. I still don't know where his face is or her face. Yeah. Well, I guess, well, Henry's the point. Yeah, the face is like a, is a shroud of lettuce. It's a, it's a very strange thing. Um, and that name, there's a restaurant, Henry's Puffy, a Puffy Taco is a soft, uh, a soft shell, you know, a corn tortilla taco. Uh, put in a deep fryer so it's a kind of unique spin on a traditional taco and there's a restaurant called henry's puffy henry's puffy tacos in san antonio so the mascot originally came about due to a partnership between the team and this specific restaurant but i think through the years it's kind of transcended just to become henry the puffy taco no matter where you go uh class a advanced by the way with class a advanced i realized that there's more of my favorite uh, mascots clustered in that level than anywhere else. I went with the Bonesto Nuts just because they are so uh, visually striking. Wally Walnut, Al Almond, and then a few years ago, Shelly Pistachio, who I fell in love with when I visited Modesto. Uh, she wrote in my notebook, Shelly loves you, and I, 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 I was just so charmed. Um, I, I had to go with them, but it was so hard to overlook one Bernie in Inland Empire. Uh, one of the few mascots who speak, he doesn't say speak English, but, it, you know, he does that like, like, whoop, whoop, kind of whoops throughout the game. And uh, Striker with the Florida Fire Frogs and Finley with the Clearwater Threshers, another two I love in that level, uh, as well as Thunder uh, with the Lake Elsinore Storm, who has always been really creative with what he does. The fact no I left Bolt Thunder. from the Winston-Salem Dash? He's my favorite. No Bolt. Yeah, it, it, Class A advanced. Like, I, it's you know, low, it's I, a loaded level. Yeah, I've learned a lot uh, from writing this, and, and it was one of the things I never thought to myself before this, wow, Class A Advanced is like the most loaded in the mascot game, but <laughs> it really is. Class A Advanced, where all the best mascots are. Uh, Class A, I went with Fang of the Timber Rattlers. Again, a lot of it visual. I mean, he's a great mascot, but the fact that you have a venomous snake with like kind of scary teeth. Actual, right? yeah, actual fangs. Yeah, basically. but he's still lovable. I love the kind of twist on that. Um, you know, Class A short season, I went with Williamsport. I've always loved the Williamsport crosscutters. Uh, Boomer, 
a lot of a lot of that is because you know I think he's in that Philadelphia or Philly fanatic tradition. You know, Crosscutters are a Phillies affiliate of being something of indeterminate species and truly bizarre. Uh, his origin story really does involve like stumbling in from the woods, and he still has leaves on him from just kind of appearing at the ballpark. <laughs> um, his, his eyes are just a total mess. I mean, he looks like one of the most questionable mascots, and I mean that in the best way. But like questionable, where you might look at him and be like, "What is going he on?" He just looks like a Disney dude? reject. Like, he was supposed to get his own special in the 60s, and then Walt decided against it. And now he wandered, and after that, he wandered into the woods. Yeah. He wanders the purgatory of minor league baseball. Yeah, yeah. I think technically he met the former mascot, Rusty Roughcut, in the woods because he was like a lumberjack. And somehow Rusty met Boomer and was kind of like, yo, I got this gig if you want it. And then he kind of stumbled in. And So Rusty's still out there? I don't know where Ruff, Rusty went, but he left. Rusty could not be held down by any team. Rusty He's Ruff wandering he the, is, he the is, Pennsylvania landscape somewhere. He is. If you if you if you've seen Rusty Roughcut uh, out in the wild, please let me know. Please call and, the Williamsport Crosscutters and report him. Yeah, yeah I'd like to report <laughs> a, a missing mascot. Um, finally, I think my actual favorite mascot in all of minor league baseball is Roscoe the Rooster. We've talked about him before with the Princeton Rays. Roscoe one can flat out talk. You can just go up to him and speak with. Him. And that is just bizarre. There's actually a video interview in the story that I conducted with him when I visited Princeton in 2016. And outside of that, Roscoe competes on the local West Virginia wrestling circuit (laughs) as a character. And he has like the chicken wing finishing move and he like beats up the Cuban assassin, one of his enemies. And it is one of my like dreams to see, to go to a, you know, grassroots, low-level wrestling match somewhere in West Virginia, and see and see the mascot for an Appy League team who can talk, like beating dudes up in the ring. I just, I just, that's peak America right there. That's what makes me love living here. <laughs> Roscoe the Rooster. Ben, what's coming up in this series? I know um, there is a, a, a new edition coming. Uh, is that tomorrow? We're recording this on Wednesday. When's the When's the next yeah. one coming out? Yeah, it's tomorrow, the same day this podcast drops, and that's going to be Best Ballpark Views. You know, I started the series with Best Ballparks, and, and that obviously has a wide range of criteria, but I just isolated it all to the view. And spoiler alert, all the ones I cho- chose are n- none of those are ones I chose as my overall favorites in the level. But um, obviously, there's a lot of great views in minor league baseball. So I think that story will uh, you know, do well. And hopefully, as all these stories have done, spark some debate. And after that, I think I'm going to do like a, my favorite ballpark characters, you know, just whether they're fans or team employees or something like that. Um, maybe just a ballpark quirks, which is even more hard to pin down. Mm. But that's about it. Uh, but this has been good. It's a strong list that you've got going so far. It's been good to do this. And uh, as you guys know, like October and November are the some of the outside of the logo stuff, some of the hardest months just for like standalone feature stories. So it has been nice to look back on my travels and have good material to write about uh, during these lean times. And I feel like mascots is where you got the most, I won't say vitriol, just reaction. Yeah, I think I got overall more reaction on ballparks, but really? yeah, most okay. but most vitriol, yeah, was from was mascots. from the mascots um, because it is really hard to pin down, and like, everyone's criteria is different. And I did have some stunning omissions when I was reading it on the day after I wrote it. I was like, I was arguing with myself. I was like, how did you do that? I was like leaving my uh, like myself angry Twitter comments on my burner account, <laughs> like via. My, um, I just you know. 
And I've just got one theory as to why Class A Advanced might be so loaded for you. And I just want to bounce this off of you while we're at, while we're talking about this. Class A Advanced is kind of that level, that first level, where like Double A, you feel like they are close to the majors. We talk to prospects about that all the time. Triple A, they are close to the majors. That is part of the draw of going to see it, is seeing guys that legitimately will probably be in the majors soon. Class A Advanced is that first level where you know you're going to have to wait a while. Do you feel like that causes teams to be a little bit more outlandish, a little bit riskier in trying to get some of these other things, like whether it's food or whether it's different mascots, or is it more just happenstance? I don't know. I like that theory. I think I'd go with happenstance overall, but um, we'll have to look into that and uh, develop a, a wide-ranging theory and, and justify it and have it peer-reviewed. But I think I think you may be onto something. Right. You just got to be riskier at Class A Advanced to get people to show up. You got to have a little bit more of the wackier mascots and stuff like that. But that's just an idea. Interesting. Interesting theory. <laughs> Benjamin Hill I can is tell on. You've been chewing on that one, Tyler. I, I, I was. I was thinking about it. Thinking yeah. about it. Very. Uh, you know, very, uh, very close inspection of that idea. Benjamin Hill's on Twitter. He is at Ben's Biz there, and the blog is bensbiz.mlblogs.com. You can check out the stories at milb.com. And, uh, Ben, thanks, man. We'll uh, continue to debate all of this going forward, and uh, I'm sure there will be a lot more. Yeah, looking forward to it, and it's great to have you guys both uh, back where you belong, speaking with one another on the podcast. And, uh, <laughs> Sam, it's great to have you, of course, sitting to my right. Yeah, and happy belated birthday, Ben. Oh. Oh, wow. We went, right this whole, went this whole time. I wanted to, you on the edge of your seat wondering if we were going to mention your birthday. To be honest, I forgot. I'm like, I was, I'm it happened s- yesterday. Well, I didn't forget my birthday, <laughs> but I forgot in this conversation. But yes, uh, Tuesday was my birthday, election day. It was my own personal midterms. and um, <laughs> <laughs> It was the midterms of your life. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so hit me up on Twitter and say happy birthday and tell me how much uh, I mean to you because uh, – still your birthday it's still my birth week exactly happy birthday at ben's biz thanks ben thank you wrapping up this week's episode of the show before the show podcast you can find sam on twitter he's at sam dykes or milb i am at tyler mon benjamin hill is at ben's biz and minor league baseball is at milb and uh buddy reed is at buddy loco 23 you can catch up with the padres number uh 13 prospect there as well bounce all of your hockey related questions off of buddy reed and uh i want to see a showdown now between buddy reed and tom glavin See, like I want to see tom one glavin's like a little old now but you know like maybe like in a in a video game sense 22-year-old Tom Glavin, 22-year-old Buddy Reed on the ice. Go at it. See, I, I want to see one between him and, uh, who was it, Eddie Alvarez? Oh, yeah, Eddie Alvarez, the White Sox prospect and former uh, speed skating silver medalist. Right. Uh, he, you know, Buddy brought up the idea of, you know, speed skaters are, are different than hockey skaters and what how that speed translates. I would love to see them go at it on land and on ice. Yeah. Let's set that up. I, I would love to do that. We'll, we'll have like to tease that out when the podcast comes out. No. We'll tweet at both of them and, and see what they're up to. It's like Seabiscuit War Admiral. Not <laughs> I, just, I just threw out a, another horse's name. It wasn't Seabiscuit Secretary. But, yeah, it would be like the race of the century. What, who did Seabiscuit run against? Wasn't it War Admiral? Yeah, it was War Admiral. But initially I said Secretariat. And it was oh, okay. Um, yeah. Also Seabiscuit. Uh, we don't talk about Seabiscuit enough. No, no, we don't. We should have more Seabiscuit discussion on this show. <laughs> Not um, on this podcast in general. In- <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, I see. 
Um, yeah, uh, Eddie, Eddie Alvarez was a fun story. I got to write his story up. Uh, was that just at the beginning of this year? Good Lord, it was. That was uh, prior to the, uh, the Olympic Games this year, which feels like it was 19 years ago. Um, but that was back in February. Eddie Alvarez this year reached the AAA Charlotte Knights and uh, batted 253 with a 783 OPS. But he was a fun story to write um, earlier on this year if you want to read about another guy who did some tremendous work on ice. The athleticism of some of these dudes just absolutely blows my mind. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll see what we can get lined up between Eddie Alvarez and, uh, and Buddy Reed. It could be possible. Eddie Alvarez is a Miami guy. Buddy Reed went to Florida. It's the same state. I know they're not super close, but, you know, maybe we, uh, we put something together. And Lord knows when we think about races on ice, we think about we the sunshine. Think of Florida. So, yeah. <laughs> All right, that'll do it for this week's episode. The Arizona Fall League is coming to its end here shortly. Next week, things wrap up in the AFL, which seems so early, but we were talking a minute ago. I think it's because Thanksgiving is really early this year, and the AFL always wraps up the week before Thanksgiving. That that could be it. But, uh, yeah, the championship game is going to be held in Scottsdale Stadium on the 17th. So a week from this weekend, uh, the Fall League will be over. And then what will we talk about then? We'll find out. Who knows? Yeah. We'll, we'll see after that. We'll see. We'll figure something out. Uh, he's Sam Dykstra. I'm Tyler Mom. We'll talk to you next week.